0: Welcome to the What's
1: Up With Dots Podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Although both of our guests today are from Los Angeles, this episode's land acknowledgement honors the original stewards of the land known as Manzanar, which is featured in their film. Terry Red Owl is the executive director of the Owens Valley Indian Water Commission. The Owens Valley Indian Water Commission is one of a growing number of organizations around the world working to protect water resources and expand food security for current and future generations. He writes, Paya Hunudu, land of the flowing water, is a place we call home. Numu, the people, have lived here in our homeland since time immemorial. We were placed here to care for the land and the water.
0: Payahunadu
1: is located in what is called the Owens Valley, which is nestled in a deep valley 75 miles long in California's eastern Sierra between the Sierra Nevada mountains on the west and the White and Inyo mountains on the east. The Numu lived in harmony for millennia, stewarding the fertile land and natural resources. We irrigated vast swaths of land using ditches and canals dug by hand to grow taboos and navativa. These plants were main food staples. We built dams that were used to capture fish that we subsisted on. There was a delicate balance of moving water to grow our plants while caring for the land and ensuring that all life including plants, animals, birds, and insects were taken care of. Around 1859, The Numu way of life changed. Miners moved into and through our valley. Then came the ranchers and farmers whose cattle overtook the fields of taboos we subsisted on. Places where we once irrigated were now fenced off and we no longer had access to these lands. The ditches and canals we painstakingly built using sticks and rocks were now controlled by cattlemen. This led to major conflict that ultimately resulted in the United States Cavalry forcibly marching over 900 men, women, and children out of our homeland in 1863 to Fort Tijon, a place far to us over 250 miles away. The What's Up Docs podcast embraces our commitment to Indigenous rights, Racial justice and cultural equity, not only through this statement, but also in our programming and relationships with Indigenous communities. We'll include a link to Terry Red full article on this episode's webpage. In this episode, I speak with director, producer, and writer Anne Kneiko and producer Jun Yo Kim about their latest project, Manzanar Diverted, where water meets dust. We chat about Anne's very impressive matchmaking skills, their work on K-Town 92 and the reflections of the 1992 rebellion, and how they successfully weave the stories of environmentalism, the indigenous, and Japanese Americans into a beautiful tapestry. This episode's song is the classic We Are the Children by Chris Ijima, Nobuko Miyamoto, and Charlie Chen. The song was one of the first bits of artistry that helped to define the Asian-American identity. And the chorus is a call for all of us to unapologetically embrace every aspect of our beings. It reads, sing a song for ourselves, what have we got to lose? Sing a song for ourselves, we've got the right to choose. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in July, 2021. We first met um, when you and Jen were part of the film independent. Was a doc doc lab fellowship? Well, actually, did we not meet at big the Big Sky pitch? Oh, was Big Sky pitch first, and then yeah. film independent? Yeah, Big Sky pitch, and then um, I was the mentor for the Big Sky pitch in 2019. For, for the effort, y'all gave me a, a story consultant credit. And then Jen, we met in New Orleans when you are one of the inaugural Impact Producer Fellows for Firelight in 2017. I have a picture of us. We were at some restaurant outside in the back and you are trying to stab some of my food and I'm blocking.
0: I feel like it was like some oyster or seafood.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, that was, that's what I was telling Brunel last night. I think it was some oyster dish. So Yes,
0: and I had some oysters yesterday, so it's all coming back.
1: I've had the pleasure of like getting to know you all like in different contexts. And what I loved about and then we're gonna get into Manzanar diverted later. I really uh, enjoyed having the opportunity to, like, to work with you all so closely twice because um, it's, it's really cool. Cause sometimes when you you're put in the role of being a mentor or a coach, you only get the opportunity to work with a filmmaker once. And it's really great. The benefit of being able to work with someone multiple times is you really get to see um, how the project develops and progresses. But we'll get into some of the details of that later. But Anne, you have had a long and illustrious career. I was reading your bio and I was like,
2: oh my God,
1: oh my God oh my God, you've done a little bit of everything. So I just want to ask you just how you got into documentary filmmaking.
2: It's funny because I actually started out doing still photography. I I studied that in college. And um, I think that, although I love photography and it was a great kind of background for what I do now seeing the world through images you know and I spent a lot of time in the dark room it's a different process it's more solitary and I really was craving a more collaborative process and you know and when I think back in college I was like oh my god I thought that was expensive and now look what I'm doing a lot more money yeah a lot more money a lot more time I mean it's super intensive but Um, I think that that was basically just this idea of like, oh, I want to do something more collaborative and, you know, community-based work always was attractive to me. Um, Obviously, I've done a lot of other stuff. I've done installation. I've done short films. There's There's a part of me that's done narrative work that really would love to get back to that. I think it's you know, as I look at at people's careers now, and I think, oh my gosh, when I was starting out, those, those kinds of opportunities were just so tough. It's a different landscape now. So it's like, oh, those possibilities, you know, are more accessible now, it feels like. So it's like, well, maybe it's time to try to tap into that. But, you know, I'm just like, catching my breath, just trying to figure out the next steps. But that's, I guess ultimately how I started out, and uh, my photography was, was basically documentary, uh, kind of a documentary focused photography. Did you work in black and white? Yeah, I was black and white. I I shot in multiple formats. I shot in 35, two and a quarter, as well as four by four by five. I shot with the old, you know, I have a cherry wood four by five camera still.
1: So did you go to school for filmmaking?
2: Yes. I went to UCLA for film school. Um, However, before I went to UCLA, I had been working um, as a production coordinator in Japan. My first gig was really uh, working as a translator for the Ridley Scott's Black Rain* crew in Japan. The producers were Sherry Lansing and Stanley Jaffe. So it was like a crash course into Hollywood. And I have, you know, talk about war stories. It's like that were some really funny funny and surreal situations in that film. And then after that, I also worked on Jim Vendor's Until the End of the World production coordinator. So you know, being bilingual really kind of helped me getting my foot in the door. And then I also worked in sort of film financing for Dentsu, which is a, you know, the large, actually the largest advertising company in the world, but they were based in Tokyo. But I realized, you know, I'm a creative person. I didn't want to, you know, kind of get stuck in the financial world. Although now as I look back, I was like, well, maybe I should have used those those connections a little bit more. But that's kind of the background and then i i went to ucla and then i started making films
1: so i want to actually um ask you about flicker in eternity so when was when was that made
2: that i think was 2013 i made that while i was pregnant and then had just given birth to my daughter so um you know her father's like oh i think her first words are going to be stanley you know
1: (laughs) So tell us a little bit that about that film and how that connects to Manzanar, because I actually had never heard of this film before, and um, or nor of Stanley Hayami. When I was going through your bio, I looked it up and I was like, oh my God. For those of you who don't know, he, he was in the concentration camps. I call them concentration camps here in the U.S. that the Japanese Americans were put in during the World War II as a teenager. And he wrote a diary where he wrote his thoughts and impressions about what was happening to him him and his family as well as sketches.
2: The voiceover consists of him and then sort of the contextual you know contextualizing rather than having a third person narrative is his sister so she kind of fills in those the blanks of of what was going on at that time and sort of some, some we, we kind of fictionalized and con- constructed her, I mean, he had a sister who he was very close to, but we we constructed her voiceover to sort of fill in the blanks. It's funny, you should ask, sort of this chapter of history, I think as being Japanese American, I've always been a, a bit reticent in some ways to tackle it because there's been so many amazing films made and so many people who've, who've made work around it. And, And I also didn't want it just to sort of be that, be my identity, right? It's like, oh, Japanese American incarceration. I've made many other films before that, but somebody approached me. It was really Joanne Oppenheim who um, had created a, I guess it's an educational supplement compiling all of Stanley's diary. She wanted to make a short film about it. So she approached me. And I thought, oh, this is different because it's a first person perspective. And his drawings are so charming. you know, His drawings and just kind of his personality was really charming. And so I felt like it was a real kind of different approach to the story because it really felt like it was from a teenager's perspective. And so that's what we really tried to kind of honor his voice. And so that's how I came to that project. I mean, there's another, Sharon Yamato was the, you know, co-director and also producer on the project. So, and she has, she's more of a writer and has had probably more experience with that archive. So, and I, I definitely have more kind of filmmaking experience. And I was also interested in the film because it, you know, would be an opportunity to work with animators. So that was really fun. We had a couple different animators and just trying to figure out a a low-cost but effective approach. It was, you know, it was interesting. After having made that film, I I guess I also was feeling more comfortable with sort of working with this history.
1: In your family, is this uh, something that your parents talked to you about?
2: You know, my parents had always been very open about talking about their experiences. So I don't think I had the trauma of not hearing about it like other people had. But of course, it's, you know, there's definitely, I think, things that maybe they didn't, their memory is a little selective about the things they're most nostalgic about. I mean, I I always grew up hearing about camp and you're like, camp? Is it a summer camp? Or, you know, that's the class. Story of Japanese American sensei, it's like, yeah, you know, my family would talk about camp and is it like, you know, is it summer camp? But, you know, obviously it was, no, no, it was definitely not summer camp at all. So in terms of Manzanar, I think again, some, so a friend of mine approached me to work on this project, uh, you know, really a humanities project looking at the, the Manzanar pilgrimage. And so then again, well, what can I bring to this story that's new or different. And so I think that's what really took me down the path of looking at the site and also its connections to Native Americans.
1: You were also a Fulbright scholar. Tell us about that, the process of applying and like what what you did.
2: Oh, I so I applied for a Fulbright to go to Peru. Actually, I think I applied for a Fulbright to go to japan before that i didn't get that but i did get a japan foundation artist fellowship so that was kind of at the same time so that with that you know so with the japan foundation artist fellowship i made a documentary about undocumented workers in japan and then with mm-hmm. with um the peru fulbright fellowship um i applied to make a film about you know really it was Looking at Fujimori and its his connections to the Japanese Peruvian community.
1: For our listeners, he was president of Peru.
2: The now deposed and imprisoned president of Peru. It was kind of crazy because I was actually in the process of finishing up a short musical that I had made through the AFI directing workshop for women. And so I delayed as much as possible going to Peru on this Fulbright. And then right as I was was about to leave, you know, just actually right before I was about to leave, yeah, it was when he had up and left Peru. He was totally fallen out of favor and had just fled the country. So that's why when I got there, kind of the focus of the film had slightly changed because he was no longer president. <laughs> he was gone. <laughs> but in terms of the process of applying for a for a Fulbright, I mean, it's, it's like anything else. You just have work on the writing, make sure you have strong recommendations. It's funny because I was going through some old boxes and I realized, oh my gosh, this was the time when you actually submitted like hard copies of the application. So it was like the, the you know, the formatting on their form, make sure you had all the words the, and the, but now it's word count and yeah, character and word count. So it's like, oh, it's easier in that way. Although maybe it's more competitive because maybe it's somewhat easier to apply but i think i actually applied to that twice I, and i and because i was told that the people looking at the applications are different i you know i was a finalist but i didn't quite make the cut and so then i was like oh well i'm close so i think i submitted the exact same application the next year and then i got it.
1: You've worked as a filmmaker in the US, Japan, and Peru. Like, what are some of the differences?
2: Well, I mean, I feel like indie filmmaking, is kind of the same everywhere. You just go, you know, it's a community of people you connect to and then you call to find collaborate, collaborators in that world. But <clears throat> I think in Japan, maybe there's, because it is, a society that, you know, is very much divided between, you know, people identify with a company, right? So there is less of a indie film community than there is here. Um, and, you know, I remember distinctly, this guy from NHK, who had come and seen my film, he was, a, he, you know, he came to a screening, and he was so fascinated, because he he realized that he could never you know the things that were the perspective and the, the point of view that was conveyed in the film was something that he could never do in, in at hk so yeah because in hk they're a
1: broadcaster yeah it's
2: similar Japan, to sort yeah. of they're the public broadcaster they're some artists yes, yeah, yes yeah, yeah so um he and and it's interesting because i got nhk funding as well so um,
1: I, I work with filmmakers um in um Korea with uh with um KCA Korea Communications Association. I work with filmmakers, like coaching them for pitching, and then I was a pitch moderator and for Asian decision makers meetings where the filmmakers were pitching. Um, NHK was there in the room. I forget who the representative was. So I mean, it was great because, um, you know, all of these were folks who were like independent filmmakers, and most of the films were set in Korea. But one, there was one film that was about a Olympic, a Kenyan Olympic athlete who had actually those and the, that filmmaking team had gotten um funding from NHK and. In HK,
2: I would say, like in Peru, kind of the, in general, more of the independent projects were, you know, funded by the government. So of course, mm-hmm. then it has its mm-hmm. limitations of subject matter because it is government funding. Those differences in terms of privilege are are yeah. huge, and those mm-hmm. kinds of differences are really apparent in a place like Peru. So I think the other Gig in town is just make is making kind of advocacy videos for you know NGOs and nonprofits. So Mm -hmm. people do that kind of work as well. You know things have definitely gotten better in Peru in terms of a more kind of vibrant filmmaking community. I just went there a couple years ago, but now Mm -hmm. now because of the pandemic. Right. has been really really hit hard and the government mm-hmm. is in real chaos right now so you know yeah. they just had another you know very controversial election mm-hmm. keiko Fujimori almost won she it's just by a mar- very small margin that she lost thank goodness she is calling impunity and you know she's saying that there was voter fraud i feel like she's taken Oh, she's trying to um, do, yeah, she, yeah, the orange Venice, yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, um, Mm -hmm. so, but Peru, I mean, has been really hit hard by COVID, I have many friends who, you know, who are not well now, and it's just really devastated the economy there.
1: Speaking of COVID, um, Jen has done many things, but I really want to ask you first about
0: the Asian American COVID project you did? BAM Fight was like a two and a half minute commissioned piece by ADOC, the Asian American DOC network. And it was in conjunction with a bunch of other organizations, but it was an initiative to try to get um, filmmakers to make something from the point of view of Asian Americans about how we are surviving COVID because there's that extra layer of the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes so um, there was a call put out for like you know just a short story it could be anything and I you know I've been working in the doc field for a while but I found myself behind a computer for years and I haven't been on set for like such a long time and I think that creative itch kind of came back um, because you know like I I ended up being more of a producer, but I started out my filmmaking journey to try to direct. So like somehow along the way, I just kind of became a producer, um, which I'm happy about. And I like enjoy producing, but I think there was always something in the back of my heart and mind that kind of wanted to get my stories out and my creative juices flowing again. And so this was like a very like low stakes, low bar, very like little, you know, kind of like a little project that I could do at home and I think because of the restriction of COVID it was kind of like okay maybe I can find a story that I could film by myself inside my home during this global pandemic right I wasn't really going to like interview anyone or anything. When were you shooting this? It was between March and May I don't like exactly remember but it was like basically right after lockdown happened and then my friend is her name's Margot Sito and she wrote this article about she has a live-in boyfriend who's vegetarian and she herself is like a meat eater. <laughs> she loves she loves spam so she's obviously a meat eater. So she wrote an article that that basically tied in how she really needed to eat spam, but her like, you know, white vegetarian boyfriend was like, what you want spam to come in the middle of a relationship? Like, do you really want a relationship to be like, you know, broken up or ended because you really want to eat spam? I can't stand the smell. I think it really depends on the person. Cause like, for me, like I could never be with someone who doesn't eat similarly to me because it's just, for me, it's more of an inconvenience. Like I just want to not make several meals. So even like when I choose to go on a diet, like I know what it's going to take. It's going to be me cooking my own meals on top of cooking like my family's meal because I'm the one who cooks everything, which is totally fine because my husband cleans everything and I hate cleaning. I only cook, actually. I don't do anything else. That's cool. so you never have to do dishes. I don't do dishes. I only do it sometimes, like when I feel guilty because I took everything out of the cabinets most of the time like my husband like does all the dishes he vacuums he does all the laundry I've never done a load of laundry like since we even started dating I never did a load of laundry he does all the bedding he like he he like vacuums like 10 times a day does he have like brothers no he's an only child damn okay (laughs) you know as much as I complain about cooking and stuff like that's the only leverage I have in this relationship so like (laughs) (laughs) the moment i stop cooking i'm gonna have to like clean and i don't want to do that so right so like i cook everything i love that
1: i I want i want one like him what is your reality i
0: need to say that is not my reality You have a real good girl. I had negotiated this. Like, I think even in our wedding, I kind of like reminded him, like, I was like, I love you because you do laundry. (laughs) Did you put it in the vows? I will have to dig up my vows somewhere. But I remember saying something about how he like, you know, puts the toilet seat down. He (laughs) cleans all the time. He does all the laundry and I will make him delicious food for the rest of his life. (laughs) some version of that I don't I don't like till death do us part but yeah like, <laughs> I love that that's was perfect like, this is our setup and it's gonna work <laughs> and how long have you been married Ten years actually like Anne came to our wedding eight and a half or nine months pregnant so like her daughter is the same age as my relationship with my husband so that's y'all known each other all this time yeah actually even longer I've known Anne since 2007 and this is the first time y'all worked together with both Vance and R so she was my mentor in the visual communications armed with a camera fellowship. You know, we started off like that. And I think that was the first year Anne was the mentor for that program. Yeah. Yeah. It was the first year. I met Anne in 2007. I met my husband also in that same program. So. That's how the three of us know each other. <laughs> Wait, so he's a filmmaker too? Actually, like, it was it was really funny because during the Armed with Her Camera Fellowship, it's like eight or ten of us, like a small group of people. And everybody was going around introducing themselves. And when it was his turn, he was, I think he was possibly the oldest person there. And because we were all like in our young, you know, early 20s, mid 20s, and he was like pushing 30. It was his turn to talk. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. And I just finished making a feature documentary. I think it won um, the best, like audience award in the previous film festival with visual communications. And I was like, really mad. I was like, why the hell are you here? Like you've already emerged. Yes. You are you have emerged past tense. Yeah. I was like, You're not program, emerging. I was, yeah, I was like, this program is for <laughs> emerging filmmakers. Like you already won an award for best documentary. Like you're taking a spot from someone who like should actually be here. So I was kind of like annoyed at him at first. And then and then like through the fellowship. You know he was always the one who was like there on time he gave really great notes to everyone and really liked him you know <laughs> yeah you know? and i was just like oh he's like such a nerdy like a plus student you know but then he kind of like became like the like in the korean culture we call them like oppa which is like older brother so like you know like a kind of like an older person who will like take care of you kind of person and um, like had we been like 10 years younger i would have probably like called him up for rides right <laughs> Like, hey, Opa, like, give me a ride, like, buy me lunch, um, take pictures with me or whatever. So he kind of, like, became that person for me. And then when the film festival started happening, like, we realized we just liked the same movies. And then we would keep finding ourselves watching the same films. Although now looking back, I'm like, I don't know if he was, like, just stalking me. But, you know, I know that's, that could be, that could be. He's like, oh, I didn't like let me watch this so I can talk to her about it. Like I would turn around after, like, you know, the credits were rolling. And then he was like sitting there by himself. And I'm like, oh, like we like watched the same movie together. And that kept happening. And then like none of the other fellows were there. And it was just like me and him. And then um, and then slowly we just started like getting closer and just like I'm like, oh, he's like he it was definitely not love at first sight with him. And neither was it for him to me. I think the first time he saw me, like I had just taken a wisdom tooth out. So I had this like giant chipmunk cheek. So yeah, it was gonna, it was like a friendship that developed into um into something more. But Anne was like always there. Like it's like, you know, we met in the program where she was the mentor. So I think she was always kind of like around during um, our relationship. And we would always reconnect during the LA Asian Film Festival. And then, and then I did end up going to USC film school and uh, my husband quit his job after we got married and he pursued screenwriting also at USC.
2: I wrote letters of recommendation for both of you. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Those letters of wreck. <laughs> I know, and you you sent me like olive oil and and vinegar as a thank you. That was so sweet. I was like, oh, look at that. I was like, I I appreciated that. Oh, I had no idea that this relationship was like blossoming under my nose. So anyway. So if you're a documentary filmmaker and you won't love, like go into a program that Ann is
1: mentoring. And you too may find your husband. It only happened twice. It's only oh, happened twice? twice. So you have a track record.
0: Wait, hold on. But then the second couple, weren't they already a couple before they? No. Oh, really? In fact, they weren't
2: even in the same cohort. Well, actually there's three couples. Yeah, there's three. Okay. Three couples, two are married. But uh, the other couple, they work together. They're both directors, but she's been producing his films, but um, they just had a child. So yeah.
1: Look at that. Wow. Okay. You do have
2: a track record. Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> I mean, I need that. You be my mentor. <laughs> cause, cause I'm looking at and, yeah, and let me tell you, online dating is hard. It's a dark world. Renelle and I have many conversations. Yeah. Dating is hard,
0: regardless of if it's online or in real life. I'm so glad I don't like have to, do, have to do that anymore. anymore.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> you definitely have a keeper um I also want to talk to you Jen about um K-Town 92 and unfortunately I haven't had a chance to engage with it but Ranelle has and when we were talking about what we wanted to usually meet the day before the podcast and I go over notes and like questions that we're going to ask Ranelle let me know that K-Town 92 is unique because it's an interactive documentary yeah so um I would love for you to talk about like what that Some about what that process was in creating that. Um, And, um, but also, like, Grace Lee is what the director producer on it as well.
0: So, yeah, it was like Grace Lee and Yuri Chung's vision to do it that way. And then um, I joined like a little later after they already had like pitched it and got funding for it. But it was, it was like really interesting because I grew up in Westwood during the uprising. How old were you in 92? I was 10 because I was born in 82. I was uh, in college,
1: but I happened to be home for, back in Georgia for spring break. And I remember I was getting some braids put in, in um, the Atlanta, the Clark University area. And there were police helicopters because they were afraid of people like rebelling in, in Atlanta because that would happen in LA. So th- those are kind of my my memories of the, the Rodney King And for those of you who are young, young, this is the uprising that happened around the, the Rodney King verdict when all the cops were acquitted. Tell us about like working on that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, just to really jump quickly on that, it was also interesting because that's probably like one of the first, at least for our generation, first look into like um, surveillancing the police and how they were acting out brutality. Well, I was working on
1: a documentary film about Tom Bradley called Bridging the Divide, Tom Bradley and the Politics of Race. And I did, I started out as a PA, but then became the film's primary archival researcher. I actually went to the the city of Los Angeles archives, which are like near downtown. And because that's where the archives of the the LAPD are. I was looking at all these tapes of press conferences that Daryl Gates had done and this is prior to Rodney King, Um, well, we're prior to the video coming out, and they were all, basically, he was making excuses for his officers who had either killed or injured, like, Black and Latinx men, Um, and it was, like, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, and basically, he was making excuses for his officers, so that's where he talked about how Black and Latinx men were more vulnerable to um, chokeholds because they're not they weren't normal. And they talk about this a little bit in the O.J. Um, documentary, O.J. Made in America, but um, but like it was shocking just like watching all those videotapes one after the other. And then you realize that Rodney King was not an anomaly. The, the difference is, is they got it on tape and black and brown, a lot of black and brown folks thought that, oh, it's on tape. And we've been telling you this has been happening forever. You cannot deny this and it was denied.
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's kind of interesting, because even with what's happening now, like even with George Floyd, it's almost like you have to have these like generational markers or something, because, you know, it's been happening forever. Forever. But for the world to pay attention, you almost need to have like this video of it, and it's, and even then. They still deny it or discredit. I also worked on K-Town 92. I shot um, a lot of
2: interviews for Grace, and then there's actually an interview with me on there. You know, like I was telling you earlier, I was I grew up in sort of the Lamert Park Crenshaw area, and I was born just a couple of weeks after the Watts riots. So I think for me, it's like Rodney King, even though I didn't experience the Watts rebellion, it's such a flashpoint in my family and in in my own history, and then to be to witness the Rodney King rebellion, you know, the the re- rebellion then, it was just like, oh my god, it's all over again.
1: kind of want to go back to that moment because, um, you know, we're all from like different generations. Jen, do you remember like what you were thinking like as you were watching this on the news, like when you were like...
0: Yeah, I mean like the reason why I got in- interested in Keaton 92 is because growing up like I was very close in the Korean community because You know, even though we lived in Westwood and that's why I knew we were safe because all the police were protecting the white neighborhoods and Westwood was very white at that point. And um, but I was the me, my grandmother and my brother were the only ones in Westwood, you know, along with my cousin. Um, But the rest of my family were all in Koreatown. So that was like 20 people living in Koreatown at the time. And we saw them like every weekend. Um, we had two sets of family from my mom's side and my dad's side all living in Koreatown. And so I remember during that time, it was really scary because we knew we were fine, but like the rest of our family felt super vulnerable. And although like the fires didn't reach the residential areas that much, I remember my uncle telling me because he was living in, I think now it's called Rampart, a village or something it's like on Occidental and like uh, Third Street or whatever and he um, told me that he saw someone try to burn this multi-unit I think there was like 200 families living in there they're trying to burn the, the building down and so he saw the fire and then he like went and then put it out and so it was starting to like encroach on the um, residential part but the thing that I remember was that the Korean news was on all the time and my grandmother was just like seeing all the places that we go to like disappear. Like it was destroyed. And of course, like, you know, I remembered those like iconic images of the like, Korean men on top of the supermarkets with guns and stuff like that, which made me feel really scared too, because I'm like, now we can't ever go there. Because I don't want to see guns in real life, you know? So like, as a 10 year old, you're just like absorbing violence. And you don't know how to process it. And you don't know how to process it. And and you're like listening to the Korean media, which is saying something very different from like Fox 11 News. Do you remember what the, just some of the differences were? One big difference was Fox 11 News didn't cover much of Koreatown or Korean voices. That's what I remember. In order to like hear what was happening to Koreans in Koreatown, we had to, we had to listen to the Korean news. And were these like networks like KBS?
1: Who were broadcasting here? Or
0: yeah, yeah, they were like Korean American news, um, and this is before the identity of Korean American, right? So, for a lot of people who lived through like what we call it Taegu, right? Like Taegu is four twenty nine, the date, like you know when when it started happening. At least for people a little bit older than me, I think I want to say like five to ten years older than me, who were like teens at the time, that was the burgeoning of their own Korean American identity. Because before that, I feel like all the Koreans were kind of like in their own bubble, just like trying to survive, having businesses, and just trying to like, you know, attain the American dream or whatever. And they weren't thinking about like other people's histories. They don't learn, for example, like how to be a good citizen in, you know, non-Asian POC neighborhoods, or like how to give back to community, or like, they basically a lot of you know, and when I look back, especially when I was uh, doing a lot of the research for K-1092, like some of the stuff I found was um, a lot of the newer immigrants, like they came with like white supremacist ideas because, you know, the media that they imbibed, like in Korea at the time, were made by white uh, filmmakers or like white news. So they're already coming with like predisposed, like racist ideology around like, who are the quote unquote good Americans and who are the quote unquote bad Americans so in a way that they're like embodying white supremacist ideas by the time they even like get here and then once they get here they're not like you know making the active effort to become like anti-racist or like trying to learn like black history or like Latinx history or indigenous history, right? And of course that's also like a newer thing. I feel like back then in the 90s, no one really cared about anyone else. Yeah. I mean
1: everybody was kind of in their yeah you know, their own worlds. Yeah. Cause my the college I went to there was like African, you know, there were African American there was Asian American um, you know, majors, but everybody was kind of like in their own worlds. And like, we were kind of like, well, at least at my college, we did kind of like work together because my college was predominantly white, but uh, it's not like it is today.
0: But then back then, like, I I did have a really hard time processing what was happening. And I, I was like, I don't know what we did wrong. It feels like we did something wrong that, you know, Koreatown was targeted. And, but I, you know, I didn't have answers to that, you know, at like 10 um, but I do remember like when there was like the cleanup effort happening like I was there with my family cleaning up and like painting and I remember doing that like through this church that I don't, I didn't even belong to <laughs> but they, they were just like the big church in Koreatown so they assembled all these volunteers to do like a cleanup and then soon after that I think I remember like some type of Koreatown festival and I think that was maybe like the beginning of like a bigger presence of Koreans being more politically active, being more in the public space, like showing more pride in their culture, wanting to share their culture, wanting to listen to other people. And then it, it got better after that because the rebuilding is something that I feel like Koreans know how to do. Like the legacy of being a Korean American is We know how to freaking rebuild, you know, (laughs) like we've been destroyed so many times. And that's like one good thing we know how to do is like rebuild and restore, find a new way. But by the time I got to college, when I was really deciding, like getting into filmmaking, I took an Asian American studies course in filmmaking. It was called like Asian American Women and Representation in Media in American History. It was like a very long title. That was like the first class I took where I started watching other people's like other Asian American documentaries. And I saw Grace Lee's um, documentary and I remember thinking like, wow, she's like amazing. She became like my idol, like documentary filmmaker idol. And then uh, when I got to L.A., I had an opportunity to intern for the Grace Lee Project. That was when she was making it. And then I remember like transcribing some of the interviews that she was doing. And then I just kind of like kept her in mind and I was like tracking her career, obviously. And then when this opportunity came up for K-Town 92, like I was already like in the ADOC network by that point. And, or I think it was like happening at the same time. And so the the community started becoming more like smaller, but also more intimate, the Asian American documentary community. And then it also felt like a little bit more, more organized and more democratic in the sense of like people who I thought were like inaccessible and I would never be able to talk to them are suddenly like, on Slack and I can like chat them. So I really felt like, oh, maybe like this community that's burgeoning is really gonna like become a thing. And when I got to Town 92, like a lot of those 10 year old questions that I had got answers. And cause I was just looking through so much footage and so many like intelligent people, like talking about the formation of the Korean American identity and just talking about like what caused the rift and like all this stuff, and you know, there's like a couple like key voices in the Korean American uh, movement at the time who were like civil rights lawyers and stuff. And I remember thinking when I was like uh, watching the, the the interviews, I was like, "Man, if I would, if I had seen that interview when I was that young, I think I would have wanted to become a civil rights lawyer." <laughs> but I didn't know what that was at that time. But yeah, I think the interactive element of the website is what's really interesting and different about it. So the thing that I really liked about it is that it really questions the role of media and how media was involved in portraying or misportraying the story. And who got, like, you know, Grace Lee always says, who gets to tell the story, right? And that's like what she always says, because that was also part of the formation of K-Town 92 was like, here's a way where you could create your own story by listening to everyone. And then it's almost like create your own adventure but it also points at the bigger macro question of like if you had like a hundred hours of footage and you were this type of storyteller which story do you choose to tell and that was one of the biggest problems in 92 right was that you go to fox 11 news they tell whatever story they want to tell and for me to like want to hear the korean story i had to go to the korean channel you know and so that whole and the question of that was answered in my time on key Town ninety two. But it was like it is subjective. Even news is subjective. Even like things that you expect to be objective is not. And really, it's in the power of the person telling the story. And that's also like the weight of um what we have as filmmakers and the responsibility we have to bear is like knowing that right. because we always bring ourselves. you know, no matter who we
1: are, we always bring ourselves.
2: It was interesting sort of rethinking that moment when when all that happened I was actually in grad school at UCLA so um I just remember I had this professor who totally he lived in Malibu so he didn't understand that LA was on fire he he was sort of of this mind of like oh, the show must go on. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand what's happening here. And so that kind of, um, you know, that was really frustrating. You know, this white guy in Malibu just didn't have a clue, basically. And, and I think I was living at the time at the, you know, very near the corner of, it was Wilshire and La Brea. And I was on the fourth floor. So my studio apartment overlooked Kind of pico i just remember the sound of sirens all the time and you could see all of the fires on on pico you know there were a lot of businesses that burned down on pico so i could see all of that and i think for me what was most frustrating in, in terms of the media was just the way that the news just rolled everything into South Central. When I knew that they were all very distinct communities, I mean, like I said, I had grown up in sort of the Crenshaw and Park area, which is different. You know, it's they're all different. It's all they're all different communities. But you know, in in the in the context of the news, it was just all black people or all you know all black and brown people. To them. And and so it's just, it just all felt wrong. Yeah. As someone who is
1: not in LA, when you mentioned about how everything was rolled in the South Central, like Washington national media, that's where, like, at least I thought everything was happening.
2: There are these different events happening all over Los Angeles, but, and then Koreatown's, you know, pretty far away. And then of course, I remember, you know, you just, these images of these, you know, Korean men on top of the building, but you never really heard what what their side of the story was. So, I mean, I was very aware at that moment of just like, oh, the media is just totally getting it wrong. And I also just remember people who I was in grad school who were like, oh, we're going to go down and film what's going on. And it's sort of like, I don't know, unless you got a reason to do it. Most of these people are white people, right? So I'm like, uh, you don't get it. It's like, why go down there if you're just going to go be a looky-loo? You could potentially get hurt. Because it's real. It's totally real. It's real. This is real it's life. It's real life. I mean, it's, it's just like, I, I grew up walking down the street and you look people in the eye because it's like, that's the way you do it so that you don't, you know, it's a survival technique. But if you're not from there and you don't know how to like navigate all that, you know, and I can kind of get around things because I'm not white. And I know that that's totally the case. And also because I'm a woman, I don't seem threatening, right? Although, I, I mean, in this moment, obviously, because Asian Americans were looked at maybe in a different way, I was just like, uh uh-uh. uh, I ain't put, you know, I like, I put myself out there just for that, just, just to get some shots, you know. It's like, I gotta have a more compelling reason, and it's just not helping anybody. So, I mean, I remember you know, people in film school like that. And so now, you know, when people look for documentation, it's sort of like, oh, they, they have some photographs and it's like, oh, well, I guess there's that worth. But then it's like, well, work for an organization, work for an organization that's, that it's going to actually help instead of just for your own, like, right, give,
1: give back, do something where you're giving back. So, Jen, before we get into Manzanar, because we're going to talk about that, um, I actually want you to kind of talk about uh, the impact work that you did with the film Blowing Up.
0: Working within a broken criminal justice system, a team of rebel heroines worked to change the way women... Who are arrested for prostitution are prosecuted. So it was. It's a verité documentary that really is kind of like a look into this one judge. My part in in the impact for blowing up was pretty small in the sense of like I was just doing the L. A. theatrical panels before the L. A. theatrical uh, run. So that was like a one week. Run of blowing up in the theaters in LA. So, like, my position for that was like trying to find different conversations to have at the end of the film, post screening discussions, and every day looked different. So, we did one with like Thai CDC, which, you know, I have a friend who works for Thai CDC, which was largely a cultural organization that turned into an anti human trafficking organization. A lot of it was through her work because she's an attorney. And um, there was like a huge bus like a couple years ago, and I think in SGV somewhere. And they, they just found this like huge ring of human traffic victims. For those of our, our listeners, SGV is up. San Gabriel Valley. And so my friend's job was like helping women that were trafficked re-enter society and to help them like find um, security, safety, and also just like access to housing and new jobs um, rehabilitation and all of that. So like, for like, so that was like one of the conversations we had, uh, one of the nights. And that was great because, you know, we had a lot of lawyers show up and we were able to offer like continuing education credit.
1: So they could come to the film and then they had to like bring a little paper saying that, for y'all to sign that they come to the film, and then they get their C Yeah, like, I don't
0: think I did much of the signing. I think it was all through the Thai CDC. It was also, like, a big learning curve for me, because, like, as an impact producer, we're always trying to think of ways to incentivize audiences to engage with the film, and to really, like, not just, like, watch it, but to also help us, like, design, like, what the takeaway might be, and, like, how could it be um, useful to certain groups of people, such as attorneys, right, and since Film was about the criminal justice system. It was about Judge Toko Sarita. Thank you, Anne. Um, yeah, and so a lot of these um, attorneys, like, and, uh, and then the work that they do with like anti human trafficking things, and even just being a resource for people who, you know, who need help, it was a great way to just incentivize people to come and watch. And then we also had other groups, like we we did a talk with like women in film and talking about like, you know, uh, feminism in the doc world. And like, how does that look like? We had sex workers come and talk about, you know, the line between sex work, you know, human trafficking, and just like kind of like the overall picture of like, what are some laws and things that, are actually detrimental to sex workers and how some of the things that the public might know about sex work isn't true. So there was a lot of great conversation for people who are watching the film to be able to get different insights so you could come to like all the screenings and walk away with a different takeaway depending on who was there at the panel talking about it right now I'm a impact producer for try harder which is a documentary um, that just premiered at Sundance and it follows like high school students in Lowell High School in San Francisco um, which is I think the number one public high school there and it follows these kids as they embark on the college admissions process and it the lighthearted documentary but it still gets to like the issues of like stress mental health and the overwhelming pressure of like having to succeed and all of the kids are like high achieving kids because a school I think it's changed now it's more lottery based now but before when the film was being made, it was the kind of high school where you had to test in. So everyone is a nerd. It's cool to be a nerd in this high school. The impact campaign for that, we are talking to a lot of mental health professionals. And one of the things that I'm bringing up again is like, we have to offer like continuing education credits, you know, like if we're doing a screening at a mental health conference, for example, and it's just another way of, because it is education, right? These documentaries, we are now the experts in in these issues that we're talking about. And A lot of times, like people are going to refer to our documentary as some resource in order to like make their point or like understand someone better. And like for Try Harder, it's really like the mental health professionals, as well as like the college admissions counselors, they don't truly know what the student goes through. And this documentary is 90 minutes of just what the students go through, their voices, how they navigate the parent relationship, how they navigate the school and teacher relationships. And It just, like, reminds you again, like, oh, it just sucks to be a teenager. (laughs) 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 It's so many things. When you're, like, 10 years removed and you're just, like, a a professional, like, you kind of forget how sucky that was. It's just a good reminder to, like, watch the documentary and and just, like, remember, like, oh, yeah, that time in my life that I never, ever want to go back to.
1: Let's get into Manzanar, Diverted. It is a very
2: long title. Tell us the title. Uh, it's Manzanar Diverted When Water Becomes Dust.
1: I have a book on Manzanar. It's like a, a photo book um, that I've had for like, uh, I think maybe like 20 something years. It's on my bookshelf. But I did not really like personally become aware of the, the camps that the Japanese Americans were put into until like after I was in college, you know, because our history lessons are very much not. And then I did not... No, but when I moved to LA and I, I was working on the Tom Bradley film, we actually uh, interviewed George Takei. I'm a total Star Trek fan. And like, that was like one of the best days of my life because I got to meet him. There was a part, of this, like, a part of this interview, um, we had him talking about being in the, being a small boy in the camps because, and this got cut out of the film, but we have had audio of Tom Bradley talking about, who grew up in LA, talking about how his neighborhood changed literally overnight because like back in the day, they would have all the people of color living together. And like, so there's African-Americans living with Latinx and and at the time, Japanese-Americans. And overnight when the Japanese-Americans were moved, like he just remembers going to school the next day and like the Japanese-American kids just not being there. But um, it, it ended up, that, that part ended up being like cut out of the film. But as part of working on that film, I did a lot of research on the camps. For those of you who don't know, the Los Angeles Public Library has this really great online photo directory where regular folks contribute. They have photos there from the LA Times from during that time with that showcase, like, well, the show Japanese Americans in, in the camps. And- they are yeah. totally propaganda because everybody is smiling as they're being like moved from their homes. And then there is this one particular photo of the Santa Ana racetrack because that's where a lot of the LA Japanese Americans were housed before they moved them to the camps of Santa Ana. I remember when I was working on this film, I went to, there's there's this night market in LA that they reached a part called the 626 Night Market and it's like shows, it's like Asian um, street food from like all over the world. You can mm-hmm. even get stinky tofu. And I remember like in the parking lot, since they block out the parking lot, but then you could actually go like into the racetrack area. And I remember walking into the, walking to the racetrack area and looking at the track. And then, cause that week before I had seen some of the photos of, they had built all these stalls on the, on the, on the tracks back in the day where they were housing the Japanese Americans. And it was like really surreal because like I wasn't, because it looks exactly the same. And I was saying like, why isn't there like a plaque or or something to like talk about this? And what your film really does is, and this is like kind of complexity of your film. And like one of the issues that you were able to like to work through successfully is your film deals with like three major issues, like environmentalism and climate change, the story of Native Americans and then the stories of Japanese Americans. And I remember early on when we were first like working with you that you were really trying to figure out a way to make this all these stories who are quote unquote seemingly disparate connect. So um, if you could just talk about first of all how y'all decided to do this project and then talk about that process.
2: I guess I came to this project. Basically, you know, my friend asked me to work on this humanities project around Manzanar. And when I started doing research, you know, it was really trying to think about different approaches. And I think I, I mentioned it was like I was interested in looking at the land and also Native Americans. So I think those were the threads that started, you know, the breadcrumbs that I started following. And when I was doing research and realized that Manzanar was situated on Department of Water, at Los Angeles Department of Water and Power land. I was like, and then that, that, that the LADWP owned like 90% of the Valley of Payahunadu or the Owens Valley. I was like shocked. I always knew our water came from, the Eastern Sierras or the Sierras. Everyone always talks about that. And of course, I'd seen Chinatown. I'd seen bits of Cadillac Desert. So it was like history that I was aware of, but somehow I just didn't sink in that I, I had this very personal connection. And that was the place. right? It just wasn't clear to me. And so then I was like, oh, now. And then I would go on these trips up to Mammoth and then you know, drive through that area and wonder why it was all so empty. Like, why, why was there no development there? Which was great because it was beautiful, but it was just all, all, always so interesting, right? I realized, oh, it's because the city of Los Angeles owns that land and it's the watershed for the city. When I realized that, it's like, oh my gosh, if I didn't fully understand that, then think of all the other people because i consider myself a halfway intelligent person right and born and raised in la i've lived through drought my mother you know made me use gray water she you know it's it's all those things that were super important to me and yet i somehow it wasn't clear to me that that was the connection i was like oh my god it's kind of embarrassing right so that's why i decided okay and then of course the native american story no one had you know and had really talked about it and of course all of our land is indigenous lands right so but these connections were real and should be talked about and so that's kind of how I started down this path and then after I actually started making the the film I realized that you know, Monica Embry had written her thesis at Pomona College I teach at Pitzer College basically around the same topic so you know, my film is different in that it brings you up to date to the present, but the sentiment is is very similar and parallel. So, you know, I think there's lots that's been written about, well, I wouldn't say lots, but people have written about this intersection of these stories, but no one had made a film about
0: it. Monica Embry is a subject in our film as well.
2: She's the granddaughter of Sue Embry, who was in incarceration Manzan- at Manzanar, and it was the co-chair of the Manzanar committee. She was, you know, key getting Manzanar to be recognized as a National Historic Site. So she's a very important activist. Yeah, that's kind of how this film sort of started. I mean, it started as a short film, and then it, I realized the scope of the film was much bigger. And so it just kind of grew and grew and grew. and. Grew, and and yes, it was very challenging to try to fit these pieces together. But somehow, I think it was important to always return to this metaphor of water. And that, that metaphor of water is what was going to carry all of these stories together.
1: And um, y'all had your, uh, your world premiere at the Big Sky this year, um, of and Film Festival. You did a lot of talks. But Jen, um, how did you get onto the
0: project? As I mentioned, I knew Anne since 2007. Yes, she got you your husband. I I owed her something because she helped me get married. Right? No, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> that that's your compensation. That's yeah. That's how it's written in the budget, right? Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> no, I was I was like working in the dock field. I was producing, and um, Ann called me one day, and she asked me if I wanted to help her with like some budgeting stuff, and then it kind of started from there. And then at first, I was like, I don't really know how I'm connected to the story. Like I don't, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not, you know, I'm not a uh, I'm not Japanese American, I'm not indigenous. I'm and I just kind of like was helping Anne because I owed her, right? <laughs> <laughs> huh? you uh, to yeah I'm <laughs> kidding. Um but I wanted to help Anne, you know, and she's always been there for me. So I wanted to help. And then I think as soon as I saw, I think it was like the article from I think it was a Rafu Shimpo article. And I read the um, article and then I read her like treatment. And as soon as I read through what the project was about, I was like, this is so important because I also didn't know about this. And as someone who isn't necessarily labeled as an environmentalist, it made me want to do something. And I was like, if everyday um, residents of Los Angeles watch it and then they have the same feeling as me of like wanting to learn more and do something about it then that's a powerful impact. And so the impact and the potential impact of the documentary really got me interested into um, being a part of the project. And I also wanna say, you know, when Anne was saying like, you know, she's, she's third generation Los Angeles resident. Um, she is, you know, a bright person who is really interested in like environmental concerns and she's Japanese American. And she also didn't know about it. Well, I think that there's a reason why you didn't know about it. There is a reason why these histories were kept from us. And so I think like um, that really spoke to me as just like as a filmmaker of like, we are trying to tell the stories that were not meant to be told because they were you know, intentionally kept away from us. Because if, if everyone, just imagine like if all of Los Angeles knew this story, what would happen? And how, what would the position of the LADWP be lo- looking like? And so that, that's the reason why they don't want us to know this. And that's the reason why we have to tell this, right? <laughs> and so that's really like kind of, um, also like the overlapping histories, how so many documentaries have been made about Manzanar. So many documentaries have been made about water issues. So many documentaries have been made about Native Americans. Um, maybe not enough, but you know, there like if you look for it, there are doc- documentaries about all these different communities. But I think what was interesting is that, um, all of these things happened in a very similar time frame, and we are not seeing the overlap. The important part of, about seeing how these things overlap is seeing how we were always in community with each other, but that is not being told to the next generation. So then that key component of like, hey, we were always here together. We were living side by side. This was the interaction between our communities. This is how we got together. This is how we fought off a bigger foe. Like all of these, those are the important messages, right? Not like, oh, this is an insular, like, yes, those messages are also important. Like, oh, this happened to our community. This happened to our community. Those are also very important, but you also have to know what happened to other people because that's also part of the information that the government or the bigger powers are trying to make sure we don't know. They don't want us to know that we, there's a
1: history of folks working together in coalition to, to, to make change and to go against the Goliaths and because they, 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 they rely
0: on that divide and conquer. Exactly, and they don't want us to know that they have built these racist infrastructures that forcibly removed and incarcerated people that were continuing to be recycled to use against other new groups of people, right? Like if you just look at these like things that still exist, like in Fort Sill, for example, that was like where Geronimo died. That became like a boarding school that became where Japanese Americans were incarcerated. Migrant children are being held there. And some are
1: still in cages, y'all, even though like we, it's not in the news, you know, because we got the new president and racism is over because Kamala Harris is vice president.
0: Um, But uh, there's still kids in cages. Yeah. And I think we really have to look at not just our own histories, but how these structures and racist laws are just being um, like repackaged, recycled, It's doing the same thing it was always designed to do, you know, from the get go and just seeing how even like um, a lot of like the concentration camps for Japanese Americans were on like Native American land, right? I mean, yes, all of the US is Native American, but it's like um, on reservations or near reservations, or they were like, like when we were in Montana, in Missoula, when we were doing the pitch for Big Sky, we went to Fort Missoula, and that fort was built to fight off Native Americans. But then later on, it was used to incarcerate Japanese Americans. And so it's like, how many of these are we going to keep finding and how many how enraged do we have to be to dismantle these systems because yes it's like it is a bigger systemic thing but there are actual like edifices that we could destroy you know yeah so like it doesn't keep happening yeah um
1: yeah and I mean I think that's the importance of like making sure that we know um, one another's histories and um, understand how they overlap. And you all did just such a phenomenal, phenomenal job of that in the film, particularly like visually, capturing that idea visually. Rennell and I were talking about the film um, yesterday. We were discussing how, particularly with the archives, you really did the way it was edited you really got the sense that, okay, what's happening in the past is still happening in the present. It will happen in the future unless there's change. And like, there's just a way you did with transitions with the archives. Like I haven't seen it since, I saw it in February during Big Sky, you know, virtually. But I think there was this one scene where you have like this um, footage of these like Japanese American children um, playing and then it kind of fades. into like children like playing today. And like you do, you play a lot with those um, transitions to really visually show how all these things are connected. Did that come like organically, or was that like an actual choice, particularly when you were trying to figure out what archives you wanted to use in the film?
2: Well, I mean, I think for me, it was always important to try to connect those different communities through place and time, right? I think Victoria Chalk also was like early on when we were editing, she's like, oh, you can just do these montages of cutting these communities together. And of course that idea had already occurred to me, but it was just sort of being nudged to sort of do that and to really um, you know, bring them all together. I think the other thing that I, I was really keen on using was sound to transport you through time and also to bridge all of these different communities together. So I think it was those two kind of formal techniques of, of cutting between them, transitioning between time and place and community that you, know, you start developing and then you kind of consistently use throughout. I, I guess throughout the process of making the film, I would say, um, that Raul Peck's film, um, I'm Not Your Negro, has always been super duper like inspirational and helpful in terms of thinking about how to really frame issues in a bigger way.
1: Yeah, because I, he does that with this film. Um, and uh, those of you who haven't seen I'm Not Your Negro, you, you need to see it. it's everywhere but he does this really great job because basically in the film uh, the film has a lot of James Baldwin's critique about like critiques about Hollywood and how it um, how it ties in with white supremacy and the propaganda around that but in the film visually they do a lot they show like clips from old movies but then they show clips from like present day and then um, but they do a really like a, a really interesting job of like blending um, the, all those various um, elements of the past, the past and the present. Jen, um, can you, I'd like you to talk about, because um, I've been following the film on Facebook and these past couple weeks you've done, looks like y'all have done some community screenings, like some outdoor screenings. Um, i like you to, so to talk about that.
0: Yeah, we just did like a four-night community screening in Payahunadu where we filmed, um, also known as the Owens Valley. So we started, we were like trying to think of um, how to do this screening along the LA Aqueduct. So we started from Mono Lake, like Lee Vining, and then we went to Bishop, and then we went to Big Pine, and then we ended it with Lone Pine. And it was really amazing because, you know, first of all, it was the first time we showed the film in real life with an actual audience because it's been virtual all like until this moment so it's been really fulfilling to finally like see it and not just like with any audience but with the audience of like most of them were either like involved in the film they were in the film or they kind of knew someone who like wasn't so it was like a very tight-knit community um so it was a very engaged set of audiences who are very passionate about this issue too, because they live there. So they know, you know, what's going on. And so it was just really great to have that kind of engagement and interaction with them to also know like, what we want from them is like, what should we think about as we are building out our impact campaign and what our mission should be right because they are the best source of knowledge for that they're the ones who are there and Anne, like pretty much like did all the logistical planning for this because i was extremely busy on another project but um but this is just like our first impact initiative and we are hoping to do something very similar in los angeles with our our Water LA Coalition after our Los Angeles premiere in fall in Los Angeles. And after that, um, in late fall, we're gonna have our Los Angeles community screening, which will have a lot of different partners and organizations with it. And um, we're also trying to develop this companion piece. It's an augmented reality, visual sound bath meditation experience so we want to create this like 5 minute piece where you know any viewer even regardless of whether you watched the documentary or not what they will see is like three different site specific soundscapes with the visuals of um you know Owens Lake also called Pazziata mm-hmm. initially called Pazziata mm-hmm. and then also Manzanar um, historic site and then a running creek and how how that land should look like and then just we're going to incorporate the soundscape and the music and, and, um, you know, heavy sound design to like really make sure you feel like you're there. And the whole purpose of this is just to have a little meditation moment alone, and also to walk away feeling like that much more connected to the land, where you just like really are curious about what your part is, and like how you can make your relationship with land stronger, and maybe it'll also um, make you curious to learn how you can be a better, better steward of the land that you live on, and also from the land, you know, you gain access to resources from that might be 200 miles away from you. Um, and we'll have a little bit of a written write-up accompanying, you know, the, the visual thing, so that they know like you know they can always watch the film if they want to learn more. But really it is it is something we wanted to on an emotional level have audiences connect themselves to the land. So it's not just like educational, but to have an experience. Cause when you want to change like hearts and minds, you really need to find something that will emotionally connect to audiences to spark that fire in them. It was so wonderful
1: to reconnect with Anne and Jen. And I was particularly moved by their reflections of working on K Town 92 and how the film really helped them get clarity around both of their lived experiences. Both Ann and Jen understand that making a documentary is a huge responsibility. And to quote Grace Lee, part of that responsibility is asking the question, who tells the story? Many of the stories that filmmakers tell were not meant to be revealed. So in some ways, making a film can be an act of resistance. At the end of Alice Walker's Possessing the Secret of Joy, she writes, resistance is a secret of joy. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Will you give us that five-star rating? It helps to make people more aware of our podcast. In our next episode, we head north to Montana as I speak with Blackfeet, sister, and brother team, Ivy and Ivan McDonald. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Shumash and Tongva on which we
2: are recording this podcast.